It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Is Nikki Haley sticking around just in case something happens with Donald Trump? Plus, what's the life of Bill Himmer? Two, the most dangerous man in America says that the way to reduce crime is to reduce laws. Fannie Willis and Ben Crump. And three, Russia, Russia, Russia. Joe Biden buying votes by canceling student debt and Trump picking his vice president with the Federalist, Sean Davis. It's the Will Cain Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel every day at 12 o'clock Eastern Time, right here, wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast, or on subscription at Will Cain Show on YouTube. Today we have a big show where we have Sean Davis discussing Donald Trump's town hall with Laura Ingram. He gave a short list of vice presidential candidates. We have a potential list of five. Who makes the most sense as vice president for Donald Trump? And what's the difference between political parties in Mexico handing out tortillas and grocery in the line as you head to the voter booth and Joe Biden today sending out an email to hundreds of thousands of Americans saying, I'm canceling your debt. That's all coming up in just a little bit right here on The Will Cain Show. But I want to start with story number one. He is the host of America's Newsroom. He was an anchor at CNN Uh for 10 years, and he has been at the Fox News Channel for about... 18. Help me with my math, Bill. 19. 18, 19, 19 yeah. years. It is Bill Himmer. What's up, man? I'm great, brother. It was nice to be with you at the Super Bowl. Um, you know, we um, we had to do it, Will. I mean, they, they need somebody to go and cover it, so we raised our hands. You and, know what I was a little struck we, by, actually? You didn't like the stadium. And I left Las Vegas going, man, what a town that is. And I'm not a big fan of Las Vegas to begin with. I mean, I'm pretty much 48 hours and out. I don't gamble much. I play a little blackjack here and there, but like the slots, you can have them. Uh, don't, I got no time for them. And you, you didn't like the stadium. I was like, I didn't. What was up with that? I know it sounds. I know it sounds spoiled, and I, I don't. But I. But I also just have to be real. I just, you know, a stadium that is a year old, you know, had nothing interesting in the way of food <laughs> it looked unfinished the hallways mm-hmm. were tight and there was a nine holer at the bathroom and i just think maybe <laughs> yeah. i'm spoiled because i live in dallas and i have at&t which by the way is 20 years old but i just think if you build a stadium in 2022 you ought to be up to at least the standard maybe you don't have to be SoFi. maybe you don't have to be at&t but you should probably make a top five list of best stadiums if you're just a year or two old. Yeah, my, my only contribution would be I, I, I honestly agree with you on the potty parody thing. That, that was way out of control. 
Um, you, you could not <laughs> find a short line anywhere <laughs> at any particular time in the game. Just wasn't there. And, and I'll tell you something. I found myself in line to take a leak with Titus O'Neil, WWE star, uh-huh. giant of a man. And we were both craning our neck around the corner to see some small screen television in the hallway because, of course, there was action during yeah. the Super Bowl. I think another thing you should do is you should have a television set in the bathroom. Thousand like, percent. If there's going to be a line, we need to be able to see the game yeah. ongoing while we're at the urinal. Agreed. Fair point. Yeah, well, sorry, Allegiant Stadium. But I am here today with Bill Hammer. Bill, I want to get into some things outside the news cycle, but let's start today with something that happened on your show that happened on America's Newsroom. You had on Nikki Haley after her special announcement yesterday, which amounted to not much of an announcement that she's just going to remain in the race. But you asked her, you said, why? What are you waiting around for in this race? Let's listen to Nikki Haley. You do see yourself as an insurance policy depending on how these court cases turn out. I very much see myself as a Republican option that people can realize when you see Donald Trump can't win and you know that we have to turn this country around, then I am your alternative. That's what I've always tried to say is, look, let's get somebody who can win. When I defeat Biden by double digits, when I win swing states over Biden, that's how you win a general election. You don't win a general election sitting in a courtroom. You don't win a general election where you're taking the side of Putin over our allies who stood next to us at 9-11. Bill, I think the answer was yes. I agree. She sees herself as an insurance policy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, she did a long interview with the Associated Press, and, and the quote she gave was, um, uh, by the way, if you look at any of these contests so far, You've had three states. She's won two counties. I, I, I don't know how Saturday night goes. It's her home state. Um, Marco Rubio won two counties in 2016. Granted, there were six contenders back then. Now you've got two. Um, it, it's, it's a binary choice. It's Haley or Trump. Uh, does she win any of the 46? I don't know. But here, here's was her quote. Instead of asking me what states I'm going to win, because that's, that, that's eventually where you lead on this conversation. It's after South Carolina and past Michigan at Super Tuesday. So throw a dart, pick a spot on the map and tell us where you're going to win. And I, I knew she would not go there because of this quote. Instead of asking me what states I'm going to win, why don't we ask how he's going to win a general election after spending a full year in a courtroom? That was where the question came from. Then later in the interview, she said, how in the world do you win a general election when these cases keep coming uh, and going and the judgments keep coming? And I, my, my point on that was there is evidence based on polling that the more time Trump spends in a courtroom, the better his numbers get. Now, I don't know if that changes with a conviction. Maybe it does. Uh, some of the polling suggests that. But I, I, think, I think before we answer that, Will, we have to wait and see if and when it happens, and then we'll see how the public responds. Well, your question's well-positioned because— There isn't a path for Nikki Haley to become the nominee for president through the electoral process. She doesn't have a a state, much less, as you point out, even a county that she can count on to nominate her as the Republican candidate for president. So you say, why? Why do you stick around through an embarrassment through your home state of South Carolina? Why do you stick around for Super Tuesday? And the answer has to be there in your question. I'm waiting for Donald Trump Mm -hmm. 
to lose in a courtroom. And then that somehow makes me the nominee for president. Yeah, I guess the next time it comes up, and I think it will come up, because what she has said this week is that she's staying in through Super Tuesday. Now, the Trump team thinks they're going to lock up the nomination by March 19th, which is two Tuesdays after uh, uh, March 5th, Super Tuesday. And if that's the case, you know, they're, they're on a glide path. But I think if the question comes up again, we try and figure out, is that a yes or a no? You know, is, is it the insurance policy? And I, I agree with your observation that based on her answer, I think, the, I think we already know what it is. It's yes. So I mentioned, Bill, that I want to uh, talk to you about some things outside of the news cycle. We, mm-hmm. we did get to hang out together two weeks ago. You did appear here on The Will Cain Show. We talked about the Super Bowl. But, you know, one of my goals here on The Will Cain Show is not just for me, but for the audience to have a little bit more time to get to know the people they see every day on Fox News. And as I'm learning more about you, you've been a guy who has been in front of the camera for a long time now, Bill, but you've also really taken it as, I would assume, a point of pride that you're also out in the field telling stories. And I just looked at your resume. It's not just Super Bowls. It's Iraq. It's Afghanistan. It's Sandy Hook. It's Pennsylvania mine workers. But one of the stories that stuck out to me on your resume, on your list of experiences, Bill, is that you were there when Timothy McVeigh was put to death. And it just kind of stuck out to me because I wonder what that experience was like. I don't know, were you... How, were no, you in the I was, room? I was Have not you in ever the room. been? No. There, there was a very I short... I that... Yeah, a very short number of people they took in, uh, and I was not one selected. Uh, that was Terre Haute, Indiana, um, after a horrific story in Oklahoma City. But continue with your question. Well, that, that one stuck out to me because I was immediately curious about, I wonder what Bill saw. I wonder what he felt. I wonder what he came away from that. Maybe even how he was changed from that story. But I don't want to box you into just that story. You having been to so many places, I'm just curious, you know, you're still in front of the camera, but you spend a lot of time, you know, burying yourself, getting to know some place, some people, some story. What is the one that that kind of changes Bill Hammer? Wow. uh, Great question. Thank you. Um, if you'll allow me, look, I had 10 great years at CNN, really phenomenal years. I mean, I really fought hard to get outside, out the door, uh, which wasn't easy to do. You know, you're young and you're trying to lay an impression on your bosses and you're trying to get them ultimately to trust you. And after banging on the doors for so many years, they finally dispatched me to the Aviano Air Base in Italy because there was an air war over Kosovo at the time. Bill Clinton, then president agreed to allow NATO flights to fly no lower than th- think 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 about how war has changed in your life think about this we come out of vietnam in the mid 70s america is scarred for a long time in the early 1990s there were troops sent into somalia and um, they had a rough time and there was a helicopter that was shot out of the sky. And then again, we start to feel, hey, man, we can't lose anybody. And this continued for some time. And so the air war was ordered at 15,000 feet, no less, over Kosovo. And while wow, you think about that, Will, what, what, what's happened since then? What, what's changed since then? Why, why and what explains why the politicians were so reticent when it came to casualties, I'm talking injuries, the wounded. I, we, we stayed away from that, I would argue, for decades. And the thing that popped 
really was 9-11, and the whole country was just balls in on it. You know, let's go. Let's rebuild our military. Let's learn, learn how to fight, and uh, let's, let's settle the score. And I think about how things changed during Afghanistan, then the war in Iraq, and then we became suddenly the, the fighting force that we're capable of, and that's the United States military, which continues to refine itself and invent things that the private sector could only dream about doing, and the sacrifice by so many men and women. And I, I just think about like that process for how we went from my first assignment overseas with CNN you know, through Afghanistan and through Pakistan and through the Middle East time and time again as to where we are now. And it's all changed. Um, we're back in a place where we should be as the world's leading superpower. And for me to see that evolution, it really, it, it just leaves an impression on me in a way where I, I, I've seen it happen I've seen the way it changes lives. I've seen the sacrifice that's gone into it. And, and it's hard not, not to walk away being so impressed with that. And I'll tease you one assignment. I got a good one coming up here in a couple of weeks. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet because I don't want to talk about it until it happens. I don't want to jinx this no-hitter, okay? But it's a doozy, and I can't wait. It's a real adventure. But when I reflect about, you know, the last, you know, 10 years at CNN, 18, 19 at Fox, you know, we're coming up in 30 years. And 9-11 is hard to escape. You cannot have this conversation, Will, based on your question, without thinking about 9-11. Um, but there were a couple other things that really... Um, I like to think that reporters are good when they have thick skin and broad shoulders and keep the story like a Heisman Trophy, you know, that far from your head and your heart. And the reason you want to keep it away from your heart is because you want your head to think especially when, when things are popping, and not to be overcome by the emotion. I think a lot of people are very good at that. I think I learned how to, get, uh, to be good at that. But between 9-11 and there was, there, there was an earthquake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and we went flying in there. And by the way, this is on the island of Hispaniola, and the east side is the Dominican Republic, fully developed, and the west is, is Haiti, which has been tortured by their governments for decades. Billions and billions of U.S. and American dollars and international dollars have gone into that government, and they've just squandered all of it. And the net result is what you see in the streets in the town every day, and that's a third-world country that isn't too far, just a short plane ride for the United States of America. But their political leaders have squandered their opportunities time and again. So you fly in that environment, number one, and number two, you've got this horrendous earthquake. And you're thinking, you're asking, like, what did they do? You know, what, what, from the heavens above, how did this happen to you people? And it, it, really, it really gets you. And the other story was Sandy Hook. Um, we went up. Th there was a bulletin that crossed on the AP. I think it was 930 in the morning. It might have been 830. But what you don't want with a school shooting or any shooting is one line of information and then dead silence for hours because uh, that's a telltale sign. So we knew it was an elementary school. We knew it was Sandy Hook. We had no information for hours. And then it started to dribble in a little more and a little more and talked to the boss. He said, you want to go up? And I said, I'll be there. And I tell you what, Will, it's, it's a long story. I'll, I'll truncate it for the purpose of our conversation here. If you were to walk through the parking lot of Sandy Hook Elementary, it was as close as I have ever been to smelling 
the devil. And I, I could feel it. I knew it was there. It was satanic in nature and really took me back. And remember, this was mid-December. And I remember walking over the camera when I got back to the camera location. I said, just remember, you know, these are five- and six-year-old kids. And for most of them, their parents already have Christmas presents wrapped for them that they will never open. And we hung out there for a long time. On that Saturday afternoon, the coroner came out and gave a press conference. And I want to relay the story to you quickly because I want you to hear it. The, the, the coroners are people of, of, they're of a different breed. Their training, what they do for a living, how they explain it to others. They gave a press conference in the middle of Saturday afternoon. It was mid-December again, and America was living its life. And if you're a reporter on these stories, you have to pay attention to the detail. And if you don't pay attention to the detail, you're going to miss things. It's for any story, whether you work in the Hill or whether you're at Sandy Hook. And we, we had to listen to you know these little five- and six-year-old bodies the way he described these bullets going through their flesh. And man, I, it, it just, it takes your breath away. And I, I would say those three stories are what I, I seem to come back to. And I come back to them, not because of what you learned or what you saw, but because of what you felt. And that's, mm. that's what did it for me. You know, Bill, we, we had Tony Robbins here on the Will Cain Show last week, and he said, um, we live in a world full of information. You're, you're an onslaught of information, but information without emotion is not retained. Um, he said it's one of the reasons women have such long memories as compared to men, but I appreciate... <laughs> he may not be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I appreciate... Uh, I appreciate you talking about how you felt about those stories, and that's the balance of your job, our job. I like the Heisman Trophy analogy, is to hold the story. You can't ignore your heart. You have to feel, and you have to, mm -hmm. to relay that emotion to an audience, but you also have to analyze it with your head, so you have to hold it out like the Heisman pose. I appreciate that. One of the things um, about your, your bio, Bill, that stands out to me is on this same on this, this same subject. It's an interest in always getting out, out of the studio, out, I don't know, out of the norm. You know, I saw you, like me, love sports. You always mm -hmm. have. You started out doing sports, but then you took this, I think you were 26 years old. You took this hiatus. You backpacked yeah. all over the world, but you, you also made it part of your job filing dispatches back to your local media. Um, why? Why go hit wow. I, uh, what was it? Southeast Asia? Yeah. Middle East? <laughs> yeah. The um, I'm older than you, so, so bear with me here. This was the early 90s. This is right before email, and this is right before ATMs. Okay, think about that. You're traveling with books, Will, literally. Um, <clears throat> I had my midlife crisis at age 26, and I felt if I did not circumnavigate the globe with a backpack— all third world travel now. You know, this wasn't like Paris and London and Amsterdam. You know, this was, uh, this had some grit to it. And I thought if I don't get this done by the time I'm 30, you know, my life means nothing. <laughs> and I don't know why I felt that, but I, I guess it was a sense of adventure. And uh, maybe for me, it was um, a pursuit of an education that I felt at that point in my life I had not yet acquired. And I, I can tell you, you know, listen, these were emerging, these were third world countries before they became emerging markets, before they became competitors with the United States. We're talking China. Um, we're talking India, uh, Vietnam. 
Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Middle East, Eastern Europe, Russia, gone for 10 months. And every day you wake up, you do something that you have never done before in your life. And I, it, it's the fullest education that I can imagine. When you are, when you're being a good reporter, when you are out understanding the story, face-to-face -face with people who have experienced it, you, you learn about it in a whole different way rather than just sitting at a desk. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with a desk. The advantage of being an anchor every day is that on those stories where you are not out there, you at least get a voice on some of the biggest stories of the day for that particular day. And so what this trip did for me is it gave me an education I would have never, not, never gotten uh, without it. Um, were, you, were you Bill alone? Yeah, for the most part. I left with a buddy, buddy of mine, and we traveled for a couple months, and he split. Um, and I um, sort of blazed the trail. Wow. I tell you, you know what, Will's really interesting? You know, there's no travel guide on this. You know, you're, you're at a train station somewhere in, in Varanasi, India, and you're trying to figure out how to get to Delhi. Well, <laughs> you got to figure out the writing on the wall, right? And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and the same thing is true for China. You know, I, I would take a 37-hour train ride from uh, maybe from Guangzhou up to Beijing before they had the high-speed rail, 17-hour train ride to Shanghai, take another, I don't know, 18-hour train ride to Guilin, hop on a boat, take a ferry here, there. And it worked. It freaking worked, <laughs> right? You didn't, need a yeah. you didn't need a phone. And there was you this didn't have a lonely planet? I did. Yeah, that's that's that, that that was your. Bible. That's the old school. Yeah, that's the old school iPhone, Lonely Planet <laughs> book that you carried everywhere with. They gave you, you know what's interesting. They, about, they so, gave you a ho couple of hotel <laughs> recommendations and maybe a few things to sightsee, and then you were on your own. Hey, I think I had my midlife crisis as about the same age. I think it's a quarter life crisis, or maybe a third life crisis. Uh -huh. um, you know, after law school, Bill, I moved to Montana. I worked a ranch. I, I worked for a hunting outfitter. I spent a year, not necessarily in part in the mountains, but but in part in the valleys. So some semblance of civilization as well. And I didn't do what you did. And I wonder, as I you've used the word education, and I don't, from what I understand, you didn't leave your idea of a career behind. You filed those dispatches. So yeah, you're I right wonder, about that. was that? Was that the purpose, education, or was it, I'm going to be honest, part of mine, I had some sense of what I wanted to do, but it was also to be that, honestly, I, I know it's cliche, but I was doing the thing where I'm like, I want to find myself. I want to, I want to know what it is I want to do and why mm -hmm. I'm here. And, and that happened for me, same time, at about the age of 25. Yeah. Yeah, I can fully understand that and fully respect that, too. Um, it's part of the necessary process of growing up, right? Um, maturing and finding out what's what's life in it for you. Um, I guess for me, I, I look, I, I put so much blood, sweat, and tears into my job. I didn't want to just kick it to the curb. I didn't want to think that if I if I if I do this and I catch malaria in three months, so I'm going to come home without a gig. And um, I, I enjoyed the challenge of television. I liked the challenge of live. I I like meeting deadlines, and I like you know poking around and learning things. And 
So I didn't want to totally give that up, and that's why I kept the connection up. And it, it, look, it, it worked out in my favor in a, in a big way. And you know, Will, I, I would say this. I don't know what your Montana experience led you to, and I don't know what Tony Robbins said was the moment in his life where he said, i got to pursue this, and once I get to the end of this experience, I'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. I really didn't know what it would do for me. Um, but I know how it ended up, and I had no way of seeing that. And I, I just feel like, with that opportunity, I was able to walk into CNN and do an audition and write down all these countries that I had been on my own, and that's what they were looking for. And I was 30 years old, and they were in desperate need of it. I kind of walked into an awesome opportunity, and I've I've, I've never looked back. And I, I don't, I just feel so fortunate, you know. I mean, I, I get to engage people with like like you uh, and others who have all original thoughts on their own, and you you want to get involved intellectually and sort of understand things on your terms um, after you've done the work and you come at it from an educated perspective. And boy, I just look at, uh, look at the people here at Fox and it, it's such a pleasure to just pick the brains of really smart people. That's, that's, that's it's a, honestly my that's favorite a real thing. gift. Well, it's a, my favorite thing about my job is that I get, I get to, I get paid to continue to learn. And I know that sounds hokey, but I'm a, I'm a curious person by nature. Mm -hmm. I'd be doing this if I wasn't getting paid, you know, and now I get to learn, I get to fall down the rabbit hole of whatever it is I want to learn about and try to add something of value to the consumer of current events. Hey, um, I want to talk career. So Mm -hmm. 10 years at CNN, you moved to Fox. Now, at the time you moved to Fox, Bill, it's no longer necessarily a startup. It's no longer the – it's still rebellious in the news ecosystem. But I'd, I'd say, you know, it's it's more it's, – it's probably fair to say it's more established. You come over in like 05, no 06. No thousand percent. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, but I'm curious, not just the why of why you moved from CNN to Fox, but how. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, he was an – I never got to know the man, but he's, I mean, he's a titan in the news media world, Roger Ailes, and I'm sure he had something to do with bringing you over to Fox. Just give me yeah. that story, how you make the move yeah, from CNN um, to Fox. He's from Ohio. I'm from Ohio. Uh, you know, you're from Texas, right? I mean, when you hear about people from your home state, you pay a little more attention to them. And I paid attention to him. Um, what I noticed <clears throat> during the election recount of 2000, which was another phenomenal story, Will. You would have loved it, especially with your law background. <clears throat> so we went 37 days without a president. And I'm, I remember the night before because Bernie Shaw and Judy Woodruff were our political anchors in Atlanta. And my job was to take over for them at midnight. And I was all jacked up for that because there were going to be some late House seats that are going to break on the West Coast. Some Senate seats are going to be decided. So maybe we get a chance to call the balance of power, even though the presidency will be over. Well, they never got off the, the anchor desk. So <laughs> I never got on. And the next day, this producer, Jody Fleissig, came up and said, Hammer, can you get the Tallahassee? I said, Jody, this thing's going to be over at 5 o'clock. And she said, can you get the Tallahassee? I said, Sure. So I was one of the first ones in. I was the very last one to leave, 37 days in Tallahassee. And, wow, you want to talk about an education, Will? What I noticed during that period, and it was a Sunday night, and Catherine Harris was certifying the votes. This is northern Florida. It's November. It's December. It's chilly. 
there's a mist in the air. It was around the, the main area of their state government. And we're over there, and we've got like 10 people holding signs behind us, and they're well-behaved. And then across the uh, plaza, red brick everywhere in Tallahassee and this location, there's people screaming and yelling. And I asked my producer, I said, can you get over there and see what's going on? They came back. They said, it's Fox. I said, yeah, what's happening? They said, they're cheering for Bill O'Reilly. I said, oh, and what else? And they're cheering for Sean Hannity, and they're cheering for Shepard Smith. And I was looking at the ratings every day, and I could see what was happening in real time. And a lot of people think that Fox overtook CNN in 2001 during 9-11. It was actually the year prior um, when they really started to make a move. And I just thought, you know, they've got such a tremendous lineup. And I'd been at CNN for 10 years. I felt it was time for a change. And I thought if I could crack that lineup, I think it would be a really good move for me. Stay in New York City. Get a different experience under my belt. And I just, what Fox wants you to do is they want you to lean into your personality. A lot of other shops are well-produced, right? They're produced, you've got a rundown, you're going to do this story, this story, and that story. What they want to do at Fox is rip the whole rundown up. And when you do that, you create more of a human moment. And I think if you look across the board at our lineup, that's what you get. And I was always drawn to that, and it was, that was a big attraction to me. Well, I still, and we have a couple minutes left together. Uh, yeah. I still want to hear the how. So I'm going to say this to you, Bill. Like, um, I think the hows are interesting. And mm-hmm. By the way, the how of how I came from ESPN to Fox is interesting, and it's not a story that I've told, and I don't know when or how I will tell that story. The how of how I joined ESPN is not interesting because it is, a, it is an agent-driven exercise where they see a need and they contact ESPN, and then we have re- meetings and relationships are established. The how of how I got to CNN and broke into this business is interesting because I sent an email to John Klein, then the president of CNN, oh, one yeah, night. Right on. I guessed it is I I guessed it is email address, Bill. I knew uh-huh. it was first name dot last name at <laughs> Turner.com at the time. You're right. And I sent him an email and he respond he responded within fifteen minutes and said, I think we should talk. And and that's what got me started. So I'm just curious, yeah. was the how for you from CNN to Fox? Is it the standard old oh my agent called their agent, you know, or or was it I you think that- you sent the how Ailes for and message, or he reached no, out to you. The how for me was that I'm 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 going to pack up here, and I had a few opportunities, and this one came up, and I quite literally met with Roger at an Italian restaurant, and we sat there for three hours, and I, you know it's ten ten o'clock at night. It was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you got to work tomorrow. Um, and I think I think that's when the you know the connection was made, and I liked him from the first moment he said hello. Um, I liked how frank he was. Um, I kind of liked his attitude. You know, he he was he was look. Roger at the end of his life got. Uh, we all know about the reputation toward the end of his life, and um, what people who have not met him may not understand is that he was just a flat-out funny cat. And he, he would walk into, you know, we, we, we used to have a boardroom on the second floor, and we'd all be gathered there on election nights. And, you know, there's a moment of tension in the room. We really don't know what's going to happen here. And he would just come in with an anecdote and crack everybody up. And it was, it was always so pitch perfect. I'll give one anecdote from 
what I remember, what I like to share with other people. I was coming up for a contract renewal. So I, I got all my arguments together and I wrote them down on a piece of paper. I got ready for my big meeting with Roger. And I walked in there and I spread out my papers. And he goes, <clears throat> before we get started, he said, are you generally happy? I said, generally. I said, generally? Yes. He said, good, because I got a thousand people on the other side of the door and they want to kill me they hate me. And if I know that I don't need to worry about you, that's one less person in this building. So what else you got? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, meeting over. Also a visionary. Last question for Bill yes, Himmer. Um, everybody's fascinated by, uh, I know I am, your day. I find it fascinating that Brian Kilmeade has to wake up at 2.30 a.m. and work seemingly until 10 <laughs> o'clock at night. It's ridiculous. Uh, you host a show from 9 to 11 a.m. Um, what is your schedule like? What time do you wake up? 4.45. 4.45. 45. In the building at what time? Uh, 6.23. Okay. For a 9 o'clock. So that's a lot of hair and makeup for you, uh, Hammer. <laughs> we do a conference call at 6.45 with Dana and Charlie, our executive producer, and then uh, we're done. If we're on that phone call at 710, we've gone too long. And then it's really uh, how much can you read, how fast, um, right. how much can you get your, how quickly can you get your segments together? And then we grip it and rip it and go. And then you're done and you hit yoga and spin, spin class right after. <laughs> I wish. I mean, I do like hot yoga. I will not lie. I know, it's, I, it's, I know it, you do some it, exercises. It centers me, man. <laughs> it just keeps me balanced. So if I get a chance to get there twice a week, it's a really great week. If I get there once a week, I feel lucky. All right. Keep him centered. Bill Himmer, the host of America's New Room, Newsroom, right here on The Will Cain Show. Awesome man. I could go okay. for another half hour with you. I love getting to know you. Thank you for doing this today you here got on it, The Will, Will. Cain Show. Uh, good to be with you, Will. I'll see you real soon in person, okay? Take care, Bill. There he goes, Bill Himmer. Check him out on America's Newsroom every day, 9 to 11 Eastern Time. The most dangerous man in America, Attorney Crump, Ben Crump, says the way to reduce crime is to reduce laws that we have criminalized, in the words of Ben Crump, black culture. That next on The Will Cain Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Who will be Trump's pick for vice president? Will it be Vivek Ramaswamy? Will it be Tim Scott? Could it be Ron DeSantis? And I'm canceling your debt. He might as well hand out tortillas. Buying votes. Joe Biden. That's coming up on The Will Cain Show. Streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel. Always on demand. Will Cain Show on YouTube. Hit subscribe. You'll get exclusive content. You can find past full episodes or interviews that take place right here on The Will Cain Show. And hit subscribe for the audio version at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcasts. Late last week, we saw a travesty. We saw an embarrassment. We saw the testimony in Georgia of District Attorney Fannie Willis. Fannie Willis is leading up the investigation into Donald Trump 
in Georgia. She's appointed a special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, and allegations have now surfaced along with evidence that Nathan Wade, a special prosecutor that she has selected, was in fact someone she was having an affair with, a romantic relationship with. And after paying him $650,000 in fees, also took vacations with Nathan Wade all across. Well, we don't know specifically because Fannie Willis couldn't identify which continents because she didn't know the definition of a continent in her testimony last week in Georgia. Her testimony was embarrassing. It was condescending. She seemed to embody the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is the phenomenon, the psychological phenomenon, that the dumbest among you think they're the smartest among you. She seemed to think that she would get by on her ignorance with condescension, body language, and wearing her dress backwards. It does appear that she might have even had her dress on backwards with the zipper up front. She obfuscated. That's a big word, but it means she just slaughtered every question with an avalanche of words and context. And no, 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 wait a minute now, see, you got to back up and hammer the judge, the audience, and the cross-examiner with unnecessary information to where, honestly, at the end, anybody watching and certainly anybody in the courtroom would just want to go, all right, I quit. Enough. This is, this is, this is a reality show. This is Love is Blind. But as part of her testimony, Fannie Williams, Willis said that she paid back Wade for all of these lavish trips with cash and that she always had cash on hand. When asked where that cash originated, she said, my sweat, my hard work. But she did not offer any withdrawal slips from a bank. Where does the cash come from? Who knows? Just have cash. That was defended online by many saying these cross-examiners and these commentators don't understand black culture. Anyone that understands black culture understands having cash. And that led me to think about and notice the most dangerous man in America, Ben Crump, who's lied on every racial division and crime in this country over the last decade. He lied on on, on uh, the hands up, don't shoot. In Ferguson, Missouri, he, he's lied on, you name it, you name the racial, the racial social justice case involving police shootings. Um, Breonna Taylor, literally, you find the one and you will find a Ben Crump lie in flaming racial divisions in America. And last week he appeared on a show on MSNBC where he said the reason that crime rates are higher within black demographics is that lawmakers have criminalized black culture and that the way to reduce crime is to reduce laws. Listen to this. We can get rid of all the crime in America overnight, just like that. And people ask how attorney Crump changed the definition of crime. Mm. Of course, if you get to define what conduct is going to be made criminal, you can predict who the criminal is going to be. It sounds like we're criminal, though. Yeah. Our existence no, is the culture. But they no, made no, no. the laws. They that make way. the law to criminalize our culture. To fit up. Black culture. You can do away with crime by doing away with laws overnight. And that they have criminalized black culture. Now, I believe that Crump is one of the most dangerous men in America. I would also happily welcome at any point a debate with Ben Crump. I think he might have not zero. He has, it's not that he has nothing to say. It's not that he has 
no contribution to the conversation. It's just that most of the time, those contributions or or elements of evidence are distorted into a an insane reality that amounts to a lie. Look, Lucy cigarettes being illegal to sell, should that be a law? Probably not. But Crump goes on to talk about not just Lucy cigarettes, which was part of the Eric Garner case, but he talks about milk cartons in your front yard. He talks about baggy pants. I'm not familiar with a law criminalizing baggy pants. But he's suggesting that black culture, like the kind described by Fannie Willis, apparently, in keeping a hoard of cash, has been criminalized. We should talk about culture for just one moment. Culture is separate from race. A criticism of culture is not a criticism of a race. Race is an intrinsic genetic component. Culture is a collected way of life, and not all cultures are equal. Different cultures produce different outcomes, and each culture has their own virtue and their own vice. Look, this is best illustrated perhaps in Europe. Northern Europe is an industrious culture. German precision, hard work. Southern Europe a relaxed environment. They're not putting a man on the moon, but they're happily having a good time on the beaches of Santorini. This is a product of culture. And again, every culture has its virtue and its vice. African cultures have strong ties to community and village. But what has happened clearly in the culture of black America is that crime has taken on an outsized influence, an outsized proportion of the product of black culture. Now, I would love to know from Crump, which laws would he like to decriminalize? Which laws would you do away with overnight to do away with crime? Is he suggesting that murder and violence and assault and theft are unique to black culture? Is he suggesting that they shouldn't be criminalized, that, you could, that that's a problem with the laws, not with the crime? Underneath whatever little element Crump ever offers, he distorts something into an absolute insane reality that is a lie that divides America once again on race. And race and culture seem to be the ripcord that Fannie Willis tried to use in her testimony last week in Georgia. She wanted to hide behind being a woman, being a black woman, and being obstinate and combative and hostile on the witness stand, it was an embarrassment for everyone involved. It was an embarrassment, yes, for Fannie Willis. It was an embarrassment for the judge in the trial who couldn't control this soap opera, this reality show, this episode of Love is Blind. It was an embarrassment, honestly, for the attorneys cross-examining her who could not find a compelling, I think, could not find a compelling, and not that it was easy, but could not find a compelling line of questioning that helped us shine light on the truth. But most of all, it was an embarrassment for Fulton County, Georgia, who elected this woman with this behavior, with these intellectual limitations, with this crime and, and corruption, not just as part of her regime, but if I'm to listen to Ben Crump and I'm to listen to Fannie Willis as a feature of her regime. She bragged on the stand that she moved campaign cash to her personal pockets. And she bragged on the stand that she had unaccountable cash stashed wherever she stays. That to me sounds like you need to be investigated for tax evasion 
and you need to be investigated for campaign finance violations. That suggests to me what you think is a feature is still a crime in America. And hiding behind the culture shouldn't protect one from the crime. An embarrassment was Fannie Willis. Who will be Donald Trump's pick for vice president? We've got five names plus Joe Biden's email that went out today to 100,000 plus Americans. I forgive your debt. That next on The Will Cain Show. Who will be Donald Trump's pick for vice president and is forgiving student loan debt like handing out tortillas in Mexico? Just buying votes. It's the Will Cain Show streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel. Always on demand. Go hit subscribe wherever you're watching. Click over to the Will Cain Show. Will Cain Show on YouTube. Hit subscribe. You can go back and listen to Bill Himmer and his stories of traveling the globe. You can listen to Dave Portnoy. You can listen to Tony Robbins. You can listen to Stephen A. Smith. You can listen to Rand Paul, Mark Wayne Mullen, any of our interviews where you don't just get the news of the day. You might even get a little debate, and you might get a little insight into who these people are, like Senator Rand Paul, as human beings, as individuals, as Rand Paul. Let's bring in now Sean Davis. He's an editor at The Federalist, and you'll see him frequently on Fox News, and I believe it's his first time here on The Will Cain Show, which I'm excited to have you on, Sean. Thanks for having me, Will. You bet. So listen, last night, Donald Trump gave a town hall with Fox News' Laura Ingram, and he named several individuals who he said are on his short list for vice president. Um, he said those lists, those names include uh, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, Congressman Byron Don Donalds, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, and interestingly, perhaps most interestingly, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, former Democrat representative from Hawaii, and Ron DeSantis, the current governor of Florida. What do you think, Sean? So uh, my wife and I were discussing this the other night, um, and, and I actually think the front runners are two names that weren't on that list. Um, I, I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders is absolutely a, a good option, governor of Arkansas, former White House press secretary for Trump. And I think another person no one's mentioned, but who I know Trump is very close to and thinks a lot about is Ben Carson, uh, you know, former uh, brain surgeon, uh, brilliant doctor, ran for president previously unsuccessfully. But I know he and Trump have a close relationship. Um, so I, I could see him uh, on there as well. You know, Sean, in the past, this would have been an easier analysis because most presidential candidates look at a vice presidential uh, running mate as what do they bring to my electability hopes? What do they bring to my ticket? Do they deliver me a swing state like Ohio? Um, do they deliver me Pennsylvania? The job of the vice president, honestly, is not one that many people are concerned about. What will you actually get done being the vice president? But with Donald Trump, it's, it's not as though he's looking, I don't think he is, nor does he need to be looking at any of these candidates as somebody that's going to swing one particular state. Because Everybody's going to be voting for or against Donald Trump. It's going to make no difference whether or not Christy Nome is on the ticket. So what do you think when you bring up Ben Carson, you bring up Sarah Huckabee Sanders, he considers, you know, Tim Scott or Ron DeSantis. What do you think he's looking for? What does he need as a running mate? Well, I think he's looking for somebody he can trust. Uh, it's interesting. You look back at 2016. He picked Mike Pence, obviously, as someone he thought would allay the concerns of conservative Christians, evangelicals who are worried about 
uh, you know, maybe Donald Trump's stance on abortion, pro-life, religious issues. And, and Pence was brought in to kind of give them the impression, don't worry, we're good. I'm going to listen to you. I'm not going to screw you over. I feel like he's doing a very different thing this time around, especially after getting burned by uh, uh, Pence at the end of his first term. I think he wants someone who can be a good spokesman, who he can trust, who can help him communicate his message to the country. Um, it, it doesn't look like he's picking someone who he think is going to be uh, like a paint by numbers. I pick this person. He'll help me get this state. I pick this other person. He'll help me get that state. You know, Sean, if I if I'm Donald Trump, I'm sure that he is thinking about the word loyalty. And if if I'm Donald Trump, I'm thinking about some version of of loyalty because look, uh, I think it's just an undeniable fact if we look at the past of Donald Trump's hiring practices. Um, he's got a lot of people out there who say negative things about him, who have worked for him, uh, both in business and, and in, in politics. And I mean, I'm looking at this list of people and I'm thinking, you have to take past as a potential predicate for the future. Does this relationship last four years? And how does it end? And I think maybe that's not the most important thing in establishing one more you know, four-year term, but you sit there and go, if I look at, you know, Bill Barr or, you know, Mike Pompeo or anybody else who's had negative things to say about Donald Trump, am I running a risk with any of these names at the end of two years, three years, four years? They join the chorus of people who are anti-Trump. Yeah, that's a real concern. I, I would use a different word, a, a different characteristic I think he needs to look for, which isn't loyalty. Obviously, loyalty is important in, in politics. Um, I think he needs to get someone who has a spine. Because that's actually the thing that seems to determine whether you stand up to the regime, to the onslaught, to the lawfare, is whether someone has a spine and is willing to stand up and say, no, I'm not backing down. You can extort me and blackmail me and attack me and cancel me all you want. I'm not going anywhere. That's what Donald Trump needs, I think, a lot more than a, a, a typical yes man, which is what I think of when I think of loyalty in, in politics. He needs someone who understands that the machine is out to destroy this country, and he needs that person to have the spine and the fortitude to stand up to it and help him take it down. Do you think any of the five, setting aside the two names that you gave us, do you think any of the five, uh, is it five that I've named? It's, it's Byron Donalds, Christy Nome, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, Tulsi Gabbard, and Ron DeSantis. Do you think any of those satisfy your requirements of, of a spine when it comes to Donald Trump? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw two out uh, immediately, not because of any sort of like personal characteristics or their politics. Byron Donalds and Ron DeSantis are both Florida residents, along with Donald Trump. The Constitution precludes the VP and president um, on the same ticket from being from the same state. So unless one of them moves or Trump takes his residency back to New Jersey, which I don't see happening, um, I think we can discount those two, even though I think they're great. I think By Byron Donalds is a great spokesman, a great congressman. I think DeSantis is the best governor in the country. Um, I, I look at Christy Nome. I saw that the way she caved and cowered when she took up uh, and vetoed a bill in South Dakota to protect women in sports, a bill that she had promised to sign, that she had vowed to sign, and then caved under pressure from the business community. Uh, I don't think she has much of a spine. Um, Tulsi might. I, I, I think she's pretty impressive. Uh, Tim Scott, uh, I, I think the jury's still out on him. I haven't actually seen him do much really at all in the Senate. I haven't seen him stand up for much. Uh, he's an articulate guy. He, he gives a great message uh, about the importance of freedom 
and liberty in, in, in this country. But I haven't really seen anything from him politically that would suggest he has what it takes to stand up to what the machine is going to do to anyone who sides with Donald Trump in this next election. So that leaves my process of elimination, Tulsi Gabbard, and I would assume you didn't address him, but Vivek Ramaswamy as two that might satisfy those requirements. Real quick, I want your uh, perspective on this, Sean, and we'll move on from vice presidency. Um, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, setting aside that Ron DeSantis can't, I also think that they would disqualify themselves to some extent because, um, and I've had this conversation with several of my co-hosts and friends, Donald Trump doesn't want to spend the next four years with the spotlight in the conversation being on the man who could potentially take over after those four years. And Ramaswamy and DeSantis come with some vision of the future, meaning they're not just there to be vice president, but also to begin their own platform for one day being president. And that probably wouldn't be appealing to Donald Trump. Yeah, it's kind of similar to the uh, the George W. Bush model, where he he picked someone who he knew was never going to run for president, wasn't going to upstage him. Uh, and he picked Dick Cheney. Um, I mean, that that's definitely uh, an issue. Donald Trump likes being the star. It's his show. It's his name at the top of the ticket. Um, uh, I, I will tell you one thing that I loved about Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, talking about a spine, understanding the problems and going after the machine. That guy ran the presidential campaign, even though he had no chance against Trump. And, and the reality is this cycle, no one was going to beat Trump. He's the only one who actually went out there and correctly diagnosed the problem, which was the media and the regime, all the censorship, uh, the, the fact that our country is crumbling. It's it's a wash in crime. Our, our borders are being overrun. Vivek was the only one who actually seemed to understand and articulate who the enemy was, which it was Democrats and the left. So because of that, because he was so great uh, giving press conferences, he was so great in the debates, I actually think I, I could see Trump picking him um, because of how forceful and how convincing he was in those debates. You know what's fascinating about that, Sean? And I mean, I don't think, I think I'm still, I think we all are still getting our arms around. Um, you're, you're in media, I'm in media, so sometimes I wonder, do we pay too much attention to the media? You know, meaning... People out there live their lives, they go to work, they go to church, they they have their own ambitions. But I'm only trying to put myself in check. I still come back to, I don't think we have our full arms around how much we're all being manipulated intellectually. Like our perception of reality and the extent to which we've been censored over the past, uh, it's, it's, it's approaching probably six or seven years now, but probably starting at about 15, 16, the censorship industrial complex has warped that sense of reality we walk around with, with our ambitions and our families and our jobs. And I don't, I, to your point on Vivek, I don't think we still have a good idea of, of how impactful that is for people, not just in the media, but everyday Americans and how we live our lives. I want to ask you about this, and it's not divorced from that conversation. Russia, Russia, Russia. Um, actually, it's a great transition because it's a great illustration of this point of censorship. Most people understand that the Russia collusion investigation was not just much of a nothing burger, but a psyop planted in reverse to create uh, an environment to interfere with Donald Trump. And it's been largely on the evidence just dismissed away. But that has not broken through to that average American understanding things as they walk around. And Democrats are pretending like none of that's ever happened. You know, Nancy Pelosi this week brought it up again. She brought up Russia collusion and Trump's relationship with with uh, Vladimir Putin and Jamie Raskin 
um, said he's in love with Vladimir, said Trump is in love with Vladimir Putin, Democratic Congressman Raskin. And I mean, then this week as well, Sean, we get the news that this uh, the FBI has charged this this whistleblower on how much Hunter Biden got from Burisma, Hunter and Joe Biden. It's informant on what they got in, from Burisma with lying and said he was now connected to Russian intelligence. And it just occurred to me, we're probably running 2016 again, Sean. Like, we're doing Russia. Russia is going to be a big part of 2024. Oh, it is. And it, and it all goes back to 2016. The 2016 election fundamentally broke the brain uh, of the average Democrat in this country, certainly in Washington. They couldn't cope with the fact that Hillary sucked and everyone hated her and Donald Trump beat her. And they had to create this uh, new reality in their minds to help give them some sort of comfort that they didn't lose because their candidate was awful. No, no, no. They lost because Russia stole it. And ever since, we've had a collective obsession with Russia in this country, which is little more than a, a rundown global gas station. OK, we're not talking about China here. Russia doesn't own the world's manufacturing capacity, doesn't own a bulk of the world's debt. It's just a rundown third world gas station. And yet we've decided to build our entire foreign policy around it, all because Hillary Clinton couldn't find Wisconsin on a map and go visit it even one time in 2016. And because that that playbook for them actually worked post 2016, it, it helped to destroy and cripple Trump's presidency. They've gone right back to it. And the reason they've gone to it, and this gets back to your early point about censorship, is because they know the facts don't actually matter. They can make reality whatever they want it is by just repeating the lie long enough because they control the information apparatus, the media apparatus, and the censorship apparatus in this country. And so I'm so glad you brought up the censorship thing because it is truly an existential threat to this country. You cannot have a republic the way we have it, the way ours was designed, without a robust First Amendment that gives us freedom of press and freedom of speech. And we have the illusion of that now, but we don't have the reality of it, which I actually think is a lot more dangerous than just having a straight propaganda regime. If you know all you're, all you're getting every day is lies straight from the government, like what people got through Pravda and the Soviet Union, you're able to automatically filter it and everyone knows how to filter it. What we have here is the exact same nonsense coming from state-run media, but we have the veneer of a free press. And I think that is so much more dangerous. The left is basically doing what uh, what you do as a pet owner when you have to give your uh, dog medicine. You stick it up in a little ball of cheese and he doesn't know he's getting medicine. He thinks he's just getting cheese. That's what the censorship apparatus is doing to us. It's making us think we're getting news when actually what we're being fed over and over again is lies that are helpful to the regime. And it's all being done, Sean. I think what we're going to Hopefully we will look back with some clarity or understanding, but uh, it's all being done under the banner of saving democracy. It's not just the—I don't think saving democracy is just the, the, the cover. I don't think it's just what they're using as the umbrella to hide all of the censorship. I think they truly believe it's the justification. Like, you know— they engaged the government the the government controlling information globally has been happening for decades right and under the banner of saving democracy whether or not that's italian elections to avoid communists uh, communists being elected in italy they've been manipulating minds globally under the banner of saving democracy for decades the difference now is and whether or not they believe it or not, it is the cover. They have to do it domestically to save democracy. Yeah, and I think it's important to realize that the left, especially those in power, they don't use words the way you and I use words. We use words because we believe they have fixed meanings. 
they are able to transmit certain bits of information that the, the person on the other side knows. They know what those words mean. Um, the left uses words as weapons. Words have no fixed meaning. Um, they're, they're not defined uh, uh, uniformly over time. Words are things that they can use now in into manipulating you so they can get more power to do what they want. So when the left comes out and says, we have to take out Trump to save our democracy, they're actually saying, we need to prevent you from voting for who you want, which is actual democracy, so we can protect our power. So I, I would challenge your uh, listeners to do the following. Every time they hear a Democrat or a member of the left say the word our democracy or the phrase our democracy, replace it with our power. And that's actually... That honestly conveys what they're trying to do. They are willing to destroy democracy, which is the ability of us to vote for who we want to in order to save their own power. And that's what this is all about. Finally, I want to talk about this with you. By the way, phenomenal, phenomenal answer, Sean. I want I want to talk to you about this last story. So Joe Biden today has sent out an email where he is going to tell roughly 113,000 Americans, I have canceled your debt. It is the student loan borrowing program he's talked about. Um, it's 133,000, 153,000 student loan borrowers, totaling 1.2 billion. There's a few requirements in there. I think you have to have at this point uh, borrowed $12,000 or less and continue to make payments for 10 years, and that you will uh, have your student loan uh, debt forgiven. Uh, and it will be followed, as I said, by an email uh, where he is saying is taking credit for. Um, I have uh, canceled your debt. You know, Sean, I, I analogized this online a, a moment ago. Like Mexico has a long history of buying votes. The political parties in Mexico can show up in line and hand out grocery bags as you're waiting to vote. Um, there's an article from 2000, I believe it's 18, talking about the big currency in the Mexican elections was tortillas. And it's just there's something clear about that is like, vote for me. You get your supply of tortillas. You get, you know, buying votes. I don't, I don't see a distinction, Sean. I don't see a difference. I'm, I'm getting rid of your student loan debt. I'm canceling your debt. By the way, there's an election in November. Yeah, there's, there is no difference. It's a straight-up bribe, and it's completely illegal. Because recall that he tried to do this uh, a year or two ago, and he got smacked down by the Supreme Court. They said, you're not allowed to do this. There's no law allowing you to do this. Congress didn't say you had the authority to do this. You're not allowed to go and effectively hand out money from the Treasury um, without laws from Congress allowing that. And he uh, looked at the Supreme Court decision and uh, he gave him the middle finger. And he's continued to do it for years. This is just the latest effort. It's an illegal effort to buy votes. It's a legal effort using uh, his power to rig elections. And uh, it's I wish I could say I don't get shocked anymore, having been in, in this business for 20 years watching this kind of corruption. But I'm shocked. I'm shocked at how brazen and how in your face it is, because they know that no matter what happens with the courts, the Supreme Court will take this up again and they'll reject it. And that, that'll be two or three years from now. And by then, he'll have been able to buy the votes he wants to get the election win that he wants. It, it, it's disgusting. And you know, it's not something that's supposed to happen in a free country. Sean, I just want to get your reaction to this. I know mine. I saw some of the um, responses on social media to, to me saying this is no different than what's happening in Mexico, saying, oh, yeah, well, this is a campaign promise, and it's no different than giving tax cuts. Tax cuts is also a vote-buying scheme. Anything a politician promises is a vote-buying scheme. I know my response to that, but I want to hear your response, Sean. Yeah, tax cuts have to be passed into law by Congress. 
Article 1, Section 9, no money may be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence uh, of appropriations by law. There was no appropriation doing this. There's no law doing it. It's why it's literally lawless. And I get that some people hate the idea of tax cuts because it it makes them shudder at thinking people being able to spend their own money and as opposed to it being confiscated by government. But tax cuts are actually enacted by Congress, signed in law by president. None of that happened here. I love the point about Congress. Mine is uh, what you started to um, illuminate there. You know, telling me I can keep more of my money is not the same thing as promising to take my money and give it to something else to absolve them of an obligation that they willingly signed up for. One is not vote buying. It's like, nice shop there. Hope you get to keep it. You know, like, I get to keep my money. You taking it is the confiscation versus, hey, give me some of his money. That's the vote buying, you know. Uh, And not to mention, as you point out, uh, one is passed through an act of Congress. Sean Daves, great to have you on the show today. Let's do it again, man. Co-founder and CEO of The Federalist. Check out him. Check him out. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, Will. All right. All right, that's going to do it for me today here on The Will Cain Show. Again, go subscribe at YouTube or at Apple or at Spotify. Make sure this shows up in your stream anytime you log on to one of those devices. Or hop on over to foxnews.com every day at 12 o'clock Eastern Time live to watch The Will Cain Show. I'll see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.